actually change things up a bit we're not delivering the the fish to you this week and it's not because we haven't recorded it it is done and dusted it's actually even edited yeah uh it's just that this podcast that we're bringing to you is very very relevant to the discussions that have been going on in the media in the last week to 10 days in the uk um a lot of it uh, off the back of my outdoor tv launching and the constant debates and discussions that have been on pretty much every breakfast show on the planet, um, talking about trophy hunting. Diggory, a previous guest, has been on at least three or four times, I think now, butting heads with Piers Morgan and um, Eamon Holmes, actually, I think. Eamon Holmes? Yeah, he represent, he um, does one of the morning breakfast shows, believe it or not. Oh, yeah, and of course, um, what's his name? Ben Fogel. Oh, of course, yeah, but Ben Fogel was yeah. on as well on the same show. Yeah, backpedalling on what you were saying a year ago. Yes, and we will bring you, be bringing you more of that at some point if, soon. If, if you don't know about that, go, go, we'll, we'll bring out a, a video soon. But unfortunately, unfor- Ben Fogel has seemed to done a complete U-turn on what he was saying a year ago. Yeah. And the great thing about YouTube is that it's all there. It's for always there. You can't, you, can't, <laughs> you can't hide. You can't hide, no. So uh, with all of that in mind, we uh, recorded a podcast with uh, none other than Shane Mahoney just a couple of days after we recorded the the podcast with Chris up at the up in Loch Ness on fisheries. So we thought we'll, we're going to put that one out next, and in two weeks' time you'll be hearing from Chris. And I'm, I'm actually quite excited because I I edited the fisheries one, and I was listening to it again, and the information in it is absolutely fantastic. So if you are interested, even if you're not interested in fish, you'll actually learn something. But if you are into fishing or fish... Or just aquatic yeah, life aquatic in general. life, then you need to make sure you listen to the one in two weeks' time. Because it's not just about fishing yeah, at all. Yeah, no, it's... We talk a huge amount about life cycles and why things happen in our rivers. Mm-hmm. And species that you yeah. might not even know of, from brook lamprey to sea lampreys. We talk about pink salmon, sea trout, salmon. Yeah, talk about a huge host of things. But you've heard from Shane twice before, but in a very different environment. It was... Uh, when he was talking before, it was in front of a massive uh, panel of people in in a big conference. Um, so not not specific, it wasn't specific. Yeah, to so us. so you know it was specific to what they were talking about at the time. So mm-hmm. this one is it's back to the normal format. Back to the normal format of us asking questions um, and us not really talking a lot in this one because Shane is so good yeah. at talking. We we ha- only had uh, a pretty limited, almost exactly an hour and a half is what we had. So we decided before we are going to minimize anything we kind of stripped out any of our opinions whereas normally we would kind of bounce back and forward a little bit i wanted shane to talk because what he says uh inevitably is just fantastic and you need to grasp every word of what he's saying so there's not a lot of us in between but just it enough to matter. carry it you to don't the next need thing. us you're not going to miss us nah. i promise uh so yeah Sh- shane's on we're going to get a little bit about um context and history and that should give weight to his opinions because he Yes, he's a hunter, but that is not really his focus and background. His focus and background is wildlife, studying wildlife and biology. He's going to talk about the Wild Harvest Initiative. I'm not going to say any more about that, it, other than it's fantastic. We need to do it here. It's, I think it's one of the first things he talks about. So um, listen out for that. 
we're going to understand a bit more about the North American model, where it's come from, how it works, and how it's saved well, almost every species that's in North America now, as well as uh, looking at conservation challenges and uh, pollinators. Yep. That's uh, quite... My brother was enjoying that a lot because he has a thing about bees. After uh, I'm studying st- bees right now, <laughs> I, I have a uh, have a bee book, and uh, when I go away uh, on holiday very shortly, I will be taking the bee book with me to finish my bee book. Mm. So yeah, there's uh, but why that is a particularly interesting story about pollinators is it is um, hunting organisations or an, an organisation funded by hunters, where a lot of the work they're doing actually has nothing to do with the species that they're hunting. Yes, there's a small spin-off benefit, but the reason for them doing it is actually um, is actually for pollinators, and nobody hunts pollinators. <laughs> but they are incredibly, incredibly important part of our ecosystem. Uh, that is just a tiny fraction of yeah, what we talk we'll, about. We'll let the show speak for that. We don't need to tell yeah. you any more about it. Uh, but we do have a couple of things that we need to mention before we kick into the show with Shane. Uh, the first one is the prize winner from two weeks ago. Uh, we gave you the chance to win uh, a Hornady beer mug and a Hornady range band. And you simply had to tag a friend below in the social media post. Easy. And the winner was Matthew Potter. Good job. Get in contact with us. We, I should just mention that the previous competition, which was a picture competition, which we didn't actually announce on the show last time because we announced it only on social media, um, that has now been out. Thank you very much for all the, the picture. We, we put it out to a vote on Facebook and Instagram, and there was two fantastic pictures. One of a, a fishing rod, like Sunset, and I think it's actually in Denmark because the guy's uh, Danish that won. And then the other one... Uh, was of a pointer, and they were the top two most popular. It was actually very close. What was interesting was that on Facebook, the pointer I think got more votes than than the fishing one. Than the the fishing one, but they were very quite close. But on Instagram, the fishing one just blew got, out the got blew out the window. Yeah, yeah, out the window, out, out the, the window. water, out the water. Yeah, <laughs> window and water. Uh, so yeah, congratulations. Uh, those people have been identified. They are cracking pictures. Go and check them out. Um, on our social media. Yeah, I just want. Oh, to I should just say actually, uh, the person who who won that, which was the the the, the actual winner, was the fishing picture, as Daryl said, yeah. and the win and the prize was uh, the brand new edition of the Hornady reloading manual. Uh, the runner-up were giving a set of ear defenders, sure, the, surefire ear defenders. We didn't even say we were going to give a run-up prize, but no, we didn't. because they the both pictures did fantastically well, we decided to give two prizes up. And with all those competitions done and dusted, we have another one, as we always do every two weeks. And this competition is to win a set of uh, a set, a pair of Smith Optics Elite uh, shooting glasses. They are mil spec. We are going to put. Uh, we've given some away before. We're going to put a picture of them up on our social media, so you can check them out with all the info and gubbins about what's going to be. Um, Included in it, I'm just actually opening up the thing just to check because I think this one, yes, it does. It comes with um, two different lenses, two different shades of lenses, so an interchangeable lens system, and you can actually buy extra ones as well if you want. Protect your eyes. It's really important. Yep, you only get one set. So, so could look after them. Uh, Byron can explain the competition for once. Yes, if you want to win this, which you should, simply all you have to do is tell us who was the author. And uh, the name of the, the book, book that she wrote, 
that we've had on the podcast recently. It was probably less than 12 podcasts ago. You, you gave it away a little bit by giving the gender. I know, I realised that. <laughs> I, that's, why I, that's why I was yeah. pausing there, because I was trying to say it without giving gender. But yeah. anyway, you're gonna ha- if you don't know already, you have to check it out. We'll put the same um, question up on social media, so you can either... Actually, if people reply underneath, how are we going to do that? It happens with every competition, yeah. well, what, but we'll just do it, everybody. Okay. You, you know what amazes me is people get the wrong answer, and there's, Even like, the- there's a thousand correct answers, and the one person gets the wrong answer. So you can email we us. We don't make these competitions hard. <laughs> no, no. The, the point is we want you to take part. Yeah. So you can put the person's name uh, underneath social media post, or if you want to email us, shoot us an email. Yep. Um, one thing I wanted to say, I recently just uh, received... Uh, some reload rub from the United States. Which has nothing to do with guns. Nothing to do with guns. <laughs> it's food. And uh, this uh, this is only a plug because I like it, because uh, we purchased this, this ourselves. Um, if you are from the United States or Canada, um, head over to reloadrub.com. And I'll tell you what, it is absolutely delicious. Unfortunately, the guys in the UK, uh, cost-wise of shipping over, probably won't be worth your while, no. uh, because it is quite... The, the cost of the product is very cheap. It's the, it's the $25 or pound shipping that's the, the problem. But anyway, I thought I would just mention it for our listeners across the pond, oh, yeah. because uh, for them, it's only $5 to ship it anywhere. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the computer screen that Daryl has up right now, and my mouth is actually salivating uh, a little I've, bit looking at this food. I've tried it on sweet potatoes, prawns, and steak so far, and I'll tell you what, it is absolutely delicious. So... That's just a little bit of information. If anyone's traveling over to the US, they can maybe grab themselves some. Two last things uh, before... Uh, well, actually, sorry. Three last things before we, we get going. Uh, the first one is if you... We mentioned that maybe six months ago. Um, it's a fairly new forum for shooting. It's Is it .co.uk, Daryl? Shootgame.co.uk? Uh, yes, it is. It is. Shootgame.co.uk, a forum basically for shooters and hunters go and check it out and uh, sign up for free mm-hmm. uh, we have one only one space left on our wilderness hunts for the January dates so if if it is something that that's tickles it your year, fancy that's it no more. this is, this is yeah. the, the very last space um, ch- go over to our website you'll find a whole host of other things there as well thepacebrothers.com um, hit the wilderness hunts tab and you'll be able to read about it and fill in the form at the bottom and shoot it over to us and we will get back to you. It's basically first come, first served. So um, that's it. Yeah. And then you're going to have to wait until next season before we're going to run anymore. Uh, and on other news, make sure you keep a close eye in the coming months on our social media feed and on here because uh, us and the Northern Shooting Show have some exciting things on the go. Can't tell you any more information other than that. That's it. No, it's going to blow you away though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the last thing is, don't forget, this podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. They are going to be at the Galloway Game Fair, uh, not the weekend after this comes out, but the weekend after, which is the 19th, 20th of August. Go and find them. If you're going to be at Galloway, go into their tent, have a chat to them, uh, find out what they're about if you don't know already, although we have had um, both uh, the director, Alex, um, and Jules on the podcast before. You've heard them speaking at the Northern Shooting Show and, and, and various other podcasts we brought. Um, but yeah, go into their tent. They're going to be there. They will be um, very willing to answer any questions you have. 
Shane, thank you for joining us on the Into the Wilderness podcast. I've been uh, a great follower of your writings across all the, the many publications that you have stuff published in uh, over a lot of years, and I've been fortunate enough to, to hear you speak at the CIC, and I, I managed to steal 20 minutes with you when I, when I bumped into you over there. In Europe, you're probably less well-known than you are in North America, and I'm, I'm very excited about the prospect of bringing some of your thoughts and ethos to an audience, although we do have an audience uh, in, the, in the States uh, and North America, it is predominantly the UK and Europe. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about bringing uh, what, what you, you have to offer to them. Can you just give us a little bit of uh, your sort of a potted background uh, and particularly the sort of research that you did as you were building your career so that we can get some sort of uh, conste- uh, context and gravity of, of your opinions and, and how you base Uh, all of your sort of thought processes on? Well, uh, like many people who ended up in a life given to conservation, I was very strongly influenced um, by nature as a child, and it led sort of to an inevitable career trajectory that put me in in the field of wildlife research um, and in that uh, domain of science and research of large mammals in particular, caribou, moose, black bear, lynx, wolves, uh, etc. Um, I ended up uh, leading the, uh, the wildlife management programs and the research, wildlife research programs for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada for many years. Uh, this was fundamentally a very much a population dynamics research, predator prey kinds of studies that uh, involved many graduate students, many staff, uh, many programs over the years, and which was heavily focused on trying to understand why populations rise and fall as they do, and what are the true influences that eventually drive the dynamics of populations. And the reason that was so important to me was in part because I was deeply interested in why this happened. It was critically important if resources were going to be utilized that you understood not just where they were at the moment, but where they might be and where they had come from. And also because of the way that human beings tend to interpret information, there is an incredible tendency to react to short-term information um, and to build judgments around wildlife and natural systems based on short-term uh, information and insights, which as a research biologist and as somebody who has studied nature for a long period of time, I recognize as an absolutely fatal mistake because uh, only in longer-term time sequences can we really understand what's happening in nature at all. And therefore, Uh, Some of my research programs actually lasted for 25 and 30 years, uh, dealing with various aspects of the same questions. Fundamentally, most fundamentally, my work centered on woodland caribou, uh, which are an iconic species in North America for many reasons. And indeed, the whole caribou family, the the, the species itself has been vitally important in human development. Vitally important in Europe, of course, where reindeer uh, populations uh, feature so important historically in the lives of pre-settlement humans. Um, And so my research career uh, has been more diverse, however. I started out with seabirds. I did the normal things, you know, jumped out of helicopters and crawled into bear dens and radio-colored hundreds and hundreds of caribou and moose and 
published that information in scientific journals, and made presentations, did all of that. And so my, uh, my interest in the whole hunting world and the whole sustainable use of natural resources world, unlike some people's at least, is based very fundamentally on a scientific understanding of what drives uh, many of the primary uh, targets, if you will, or species that are pursued in the hunting world, the ungulate populations. Um, and uh, I went on to be lead the sustainable development programs for the province, and now I have various positions. I established an institute for biodiversity. I'm now establishing a second institute in the state of Colorado. Um, and I serve as vice chair for sustainable use and livelihoods for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. I'm vice president for the policy and law division of the CIC, the International Council for the Conservation of Wildlife and Hunting, International Liaison for the Wildlife Society. So I have a lot of professional kind of appointments that sort of emerged out of that. So an academic background spurred really by a deep love for animals, which I have retained and will never lose, and an understanding of hunting as um, the original engagement of human beings to a very large extent with respect to wild nature and uh, something that I personally view as having continuing relevance in modern society. Sustainable use is a, is a term that we don't... It's very, very relevant across the world, but it's not a term that we really use here. And I think it would be, it would be a great addition to the vocabulary of hunters in the UK and Europe to start using that sustainable use uh, term and understand exactly what it means. And I think that takes us quite nicely into uh, one of the your initiatives that you're working on right now. And I know that you've you've talked about this a lot with a lot of different people and at conferences. And that is the the Wild Harvest initi Initiative, which I think is the just a spectacular thing that you're doing there. I know you're, uh, you're a little bit um, along the road from probably the last time I, I heard you talk about it. But explain to our listeners what that is, why you felt the need to start it, and what you hope it's going to be able to tell us. Well, um, it is an attempt to... Um, uh, bring together all of the information on the harvest of fish and wildlife by recreational users in Canada and the United States. We currently have in the two countries uh, somewhere around 45 million people who each year participate in hunting or angling activities for recreational purposes. We have overlooked, at least in Canada and the United States, articulating this extraordinarily large harvest harvest, which is renewable and sustainable and has been proven so, of wild protein from nature. Um, I think this has an incredibly important uh, role to play in our understanding of how the sustainable use of natural resources can occur. I think it has a tremendous value in reinforcing in the minds of hunters and anglers themselves that they are part of a harvest from nature which is something that not only is important to them personally, but inspires them to be interested in conserving nature for a variety of reasons that has extremely low environmental impact and which at the same time invigorates of advocate for the conservation of the natural world. I think this is an incredibly important kind of metric uh, for us to be able to establish. 
So I am tabulating all of the harvest statistics from Canada and the United States by species. Um, I am calculating the full biomass of that harvest. Uh, in other words, just how many pounds or kilograms of meat and fish do we actually harvest from nature? Uh, I intend working with economists to give that uh, an actual economic value uh, so that we have an actual uh, price, if you will, uh, evaluation for this food. Um, and um, then I intend to address the question of, okay, if we are not harvesting this wild food in this fashion, how are we going to replace this enormous harvest under conventional agricultural mechanisms and processes? Uh, which, of course, while benefiting humankind, also have significant ecological costs. So the Wild Harvest Initiative has never been attempted uh, anywhere that I'm aware of, which is to build, bring a full valuation of the value of the food that is harvested by recreational users of fish and wildlife, almost at a continental scale. Do you have uh, any results in yet? Uh, how much data have you managed to gather to, to this point and what kind of time frame are we looking at to see what it's going to tell us? Well, the time frame is uh, obviously relative to the various aspects of the program. To actually capture all of the data from all of the jurisdictions in Canada and the United States for both hunting and and angling activities is, as you might imagine, an enormous undertaking. Absolutely. Not all the data is in perfect order. Not all the data is kept in the same way, in the same standards. It's not all categorized the same way. Uh, and uh, some of it is outdated. Some of it needs to be brought up to speed. So the first primary focus has been to bring this information together uh, and to tabulate it in a way that's consistent across all jurisdictions. That meant we had to build a, a very powerful interactive database in order to be able to handle this. We have established the database. We have gathered information on hunting at this point in time from all jurisdictions. And we are now feeding back to those jurisdictions our best determination of all of the information they have and asking them to verify, add to, validate that what we have in the database is actually correct. And this will allow us now to move to the next stage, which is to come up with a biomass estimate. And you have to imagine the scale of this. I mean, in, in single states in the United States, for example, where white-tailed deer populations are, are hunted and have been for a long period of time, 25 to 35 million pounds of that one species alone is consumed uh, in, in those jurisdictions in a single state, let alone across the United States and Canada. So this harvest is enormous. And what do I mean by enormous? I mean that this is a harvest that already we can see is going to have a, a significant value, even relative to something like commercial fisheries at the, at the marine level. Um, and so this is not a sideshow in terms of the, the amount of protein that's being brought into families and communities and so on across the spectrum of wealth categories and demographics and so on and so forth uh, across the two countries. Compiling the data is one thing, of course, and mobilizing the data is quite something else again. And one of the metrics we're really interested in, of course, is how many people actually share in this harvest. So for example, when I tell you that 45 million people approximately participate in hunting and angling in Canada and the United States, that only represents the people who actually do the harvesting. 
who actually take possession of wild creatures in these in these activities. But of course, anyone who harvests wild food has almost a, an innate drive to share. This is too much for our podcast, but it's an understandable evolutionary tendency that has been with us for a long period of time. Um, and so we are driven to share this wild harvest with friends, with family, with colleagues, with coworkers, and so on and so forth. We estimate that um, you know most people who harvest this wild food share it with at least four, possibly as many as eight or nine or even ten people, meaning that the 45 million engagers, people who harvest this food, are actually sharing it with a, an enormous number of citizens, many of whom don't hunt or fish themselves, which is incredibly important from a hunting perspective, because what this says is that the harvest by the participants, by the hunters and anglers, is shared with the wider community and the public, who obviously have a position, uh, a disposition towards hunting and angling, which is favorable because they like to eat this wonderful food, this, this healthy food that, that is harvested from the natural world. So amassing that information is a kind of a five-year time frame you know, getting the data, analyzing the data, running the economic models, working with agricultural scientists to tell us, okay, how much land would have to be taken and turned into agricultural production? How many domestic animals would have to, have to be raised? How much grain and wheat would have to be have to be used to feed these these domestic animals, et cetera, et cetera, to replace all of this protein, which is currently being harvested by uh, anglers and hunters. All of that, we estimate, will take about five years, but that's only the beginning. Then it is to mobilize this information, to try and do a much better job of explaining to people in the wider society that this activity has enormous human-related benefits, these activities of hunting and angling. It is not a frivolous activity that ends with or is primarily motivated even by the idea of killing a sentient animal. It, it, is a, it is a much deeper, much more profound, much and has many, many benefits that extend not just to the participants themselves, but to the wider publics in both our countries. And of course, these arguments can be extended, obviously, to parts of Europe and other parts of the world as well. That process has no time limit. That process is about reinventing hunting in a modern world. People, uh, I think, really do overlook the sharing aspect of, of meat. Yeah. Because I, I was actually having that set discussion with, it was either with you, Daryl, or yeah. my dad not that long ago, which was that you never, someone never goes to the shop and buys an extra chicken so that they can give it to their next door neighbor. But it's one of the first things that we do when you've cut up a carcass and you stick it in the freezer, your friend comes around, do you want a piece of venison? It's yeah. just a really common thing that happens amongst hunters and I most of us never really think about it, but most of us do it if you hunt or fish. Well, that is true. And the other side of that equation is that um, if you did give someone a roast of meat or a chicken or a turkey or pork chops or something from uh, from a supermarket, they would wonder why you would. <laughs> yes, and, true. <laughs> and uh, second and thirdly, I guess, is they would never appreciate it the same way. Even in cultures such as the one I was born into and raised in uh, here in Newfoundland, which is a heavily, obviously, utilitarian culture, you know, living on fishing, marine fishing, obviously, very heavily, 
but also hunting and gathering. Um, you know, even where wild meat and wild fish are a very common commodity, uh, in quotation marks, um, the the pleasure, the the emphasis, the importance that is given to wild food when it is shared is uh, is still quite remarkable. So someone who hunts a moose in Newfoundland and begins to share that meat with family or with friends and neighbors and so on and so forth, um, you know, the immediately the reaction to that gift is quite astounding uh, when you consider the fact that it's, it is a common commodity. People still relate to it in a way where they say, oh, well, you know, we'll keep that for a special occasion now or that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have that when, you know, our, our grandchildren are visiting or, or whatever the occasion might be. There is something special about wild food, of course, and it extends beyond the hunting and angling worlds. Uh, people harvest wild berries, people harvest wild fruits, people, uh, people harvest firewood, people harvest wild flowers, people harvest wild honey in some cases, people harvest fungi, mushrooms. And in every single case, when the harvest is from the wild, it attains a level of significance a level of worth, a level of value that exceeds anything we create otherwise. This is a, this is a profound truth that needs to be explored in, 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 uh, in a much deeper way as we try to express the value of wild harvest and therefore the value of the activities that lead to it and make it possible, which of course in this particular circumstance are the traditions and activities of hunting and angling. I, I, I'm going to watch the, the the Wild Harvest Initiative with great interest as it grows over the over the coming years, and I hope that someone picks up a similar mantle on this side of the water because it would be brilliant to have a global perspective, um, like like what you're doing. But I, I understand just from this brief conversation that we've had quite the the amount of work and data that goes into it. It's uh, numbers that which would make make the mind boggle. <laughs> I'd like, yes, it's true. I, I'd like to ask you um, to explain to our listeners here a little bit about the North American model. It's something that doesn't get talked about a great deal here, and yet it remains today one of the great um, examples of a conservation model which has worked. We've mentioned it a few times on the show and told people to go and find okay. out about it. but Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But it's... It's unlike anything else that uh, we have anywhere else in the world, and a lot of people will not be aware of the history and how it began. So if you could maybe give us a, a background of it and why it's been successful and, and the, the amazing journey that it's taken to where it is today. Sure. Well, there are a lot of different approaches, of course, to the conservation of wildlife. And um, first, let me say that no model is you know, transportable or inherently better than, than other models. In Europe, of course, you have a variety of models. Um, Nordic countries have models, and Mediterranean countries have models. Britain uh, has its model. Uh, France and Germany is somewhat different. You know, there are, there are a number of models in quotation marks or approaches to wildlife harvest and conservation in, in Europe. In Canada and the United States, uh, however, what we see is over a vast landscape, obviously, of those two enormous countries, we see a, a, a very consistently shared uh, approach 
uh, to the guidelines, the philosophies, the policies, the laws uh, associated with the harvest of wildlife, um, which has enabled a near continental approach to take place, which has been critically important for many species, but as you might well imagine, especially important for migratory species, which move between regions within these big countries, or in fact, between the two countries. Um, like almost all efforts for conservation, um, you know, uh, the idea, the basic idea behind the North American model is one of, of limitation. Um, writings as far back as the Bible, of course, talk about these kinds of issues, and certainly the Romans talked about this and had policies and laws devoted to this basic concept. But in North America, as in many modern uh, <laughs> cultures, I suppose, um, the birth of the approach, the birth of the model of the North American model uh, was, was took place in a, in, a, in a womb of devastation of wildlife slaughter. When Europeans came to this country uh, of Canada and to the United States, they encountered a world that it was almost impossible for them to, to, to take in. Uh, it was so vast, so untamed, untrammeled, uh, disconnected, uh, peopled by so many diverse tribes of humans who had been there for a long period of time and still lived almost in many cases in a very early agricultural or almost stone age implementation in terms of the technology they had and lifestyles, um, that it was uh, almost impossible for them to conceive of how there was any limits to any resource uh, on this continent. Um, and wildlife abounded, forests and fishes and, you know, huge rivers and innumerable numbers of lakes. I mean, it, it was just an Edenic world of wildness that they, they, they had nothing, nothing in their lives and in their cultures could even begin to prepare them for this. Uh, this is a, this is a part of the colonization uh, story that's often not talked very much about. But if you read the writings of people who came, they were simply overwhelmed by the sheer scale of this continent and the sheer, it was untouched in their view. This led, of course, uh, to uh, an exploitation rate of wildlife that was based on the idea that it was limitless, that there was no way for human beings to, to harness it or deplete it. Uh, and eventually this was translated, of course, into a very market-driven, very commercial kind of hunting activity. Uh, the fur trade is the best known, but there were many others that led to the demise of species to feed both markets in Europe uh, for certain products, but also to feed growing markets eventually in the United States and in Canada in the larger urban centers. Some of this we know very well and is internationally recognized, you know, the slaughter of the bison, the loss of the passenger pigeon, etc. But it really was driven in part by greed and in part by this notion that it was impossible to deplete it. And also, of course, by the deeply religious outlooks of the people who came, uh, who believed in, you know, the story of dominion over nature and that nature was there to provide and that man was there to take. <clears throat> And the result was, in relatively short order, over a couple of centuries, and then escalating as time went on, there was a massive depletion of wildlife on this continent at a scale that the world really has no other historical record of. 
It is true, of course, it must have happened over longer periods of time in places like Europe, but the rapidity over just a few hundred years on a continent this size, with so few people, relatively speaking, that the natural resource could be drawn down as quickly as it was, was almost miraculous. The end result, however, was by the late 1800s, the early part of the 20th century, uh, we had very serious depletions had taken place in even the most populous uh, or most uh, densely populated uh, species. And this eventually led to a conservation awakening. And the conservation awakening was driven by, in many cases, urban elites who uh, <clears throat> became concerned <clears throat> about what was happening with wildlife. Uh, some incredibly important historical figures emerged, of course, people like Theodore Roosevelt, among, probably the best known, eventually became president and who had a deep love for wildlife, was a, a great hunter and just began to motivate, uh, there was an awakening that began to motivate people that we have to do something different here or we're going to lose this wildlife abundance. And what eventually emerged out of that was a system of policies, laws and regulations that became universally applied in the United States. Canada, which was still obviously very much tied to Britain at the time of you know, the late 19th, early 20th century, decided very much to follow in line with the American-led concepts of how wildlife should be conserved and while at the same time utilized. And so eventually we had this kind of a North American approach between the two great countries. Um, And fundamental to that approach was the sustainable harvest of wildlife. Now this was, of course, the, 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 the miracle within the miracle because the reason wildlife was being depleted, the reason beavers were extinct east of the Rocky Mountains, the reason that 30 to 60 million bison could be reduced to a few hundred, the reason that the billions of passenger pigeons could be annihilated from the face of the earth was because of killing, was because of hunting, commercial hunting. And instead of this conservation awakening deciding that hunting should end, that the harvest of wildlife should end, In fact, what was done was to replace this unfettered commercial uh, exploitation, to replace that with a highly regulated personal uh, harvest consumption model, which eventually has become known as the North American model. The success of this model is now well known. While the authority for wildlife management and so on remained with the state and with government, was not devolved to the landowner, was not devolved to the private citizen, the private citizen had every right of access to wildlife and fundamentally that access of harvest to actually take and consume in a sustainable, regulated way, wildlife from the land became the central, a central tenant, really the most fundamental tenant of the North American approach. And this has led to the birth of you know, university programs of state and federal agencies, provincial agencies, extraordinary funding mechanisms for wildlife, um, and also the birth of just an absolutely amazing array of non-governmental organizations, frankly, that you don't see anywhere else in the world. There's nowhere else in the world that is anything comparable to what has emerged in Canada and the United States. And a huge component of that NGO community devoted to wildlife, though certainly not all, but a high percentage and a a very aggressive advocacy percentage 
is the NGO community that arose out of hunting and angling. The, you know, the Ducks Unlimited, the many fishing clubs, the Wild Sheep Foundations, the, the, the international hunting organizations, um, you know, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundations, the Pheasants Forever Foundations, you go on and on and on and on, which contribute hundreds of millions of dollars every single year collectively to the conservation of wildlife. And then taxes that are placed on the purchase of, uh, you know, hunting and angling equipment uh, that go directly back uh, to the conservation of wildlife has led us to a state today where in many places, white-tailed deer are almost considered nuisances, Canada geese are almost considered nuisances, uh, you know, wild turkeys are in everyone's driveway in some states and in everyone's fields. Uh, in fact, the abundance of wildlife in the two countries is absolutely unbelievable. And uh, this came from um, out of a disaster to a model that has now essentially been in place for 100 years that remains fully sustainable. Uh, obviously, we always search for more money to do more things. But many of the common species that today are hunted and exist in abundance, such as Canada geese, such as wild turkey, such as white-tailed deer, mule deer, moose, pronghorn, uh, you know, uh, all of those species, mule deer, elk, every one of those species, if Canada and the United States had had an Endangered Species Act, every single one of those I've listed would have been placed on the Endangered Species Act in 1880 to 1900, 1910. And today, those species thrive. And yet they are hunted. Massive landscapes. Go ahead. No, sorry, I was just going to say, and, and they thrive, but and yet they are they are hunted, which is the the, the misnomer with uh, what, with what a lot of people believe today in terms of the general public is that if something has uh, has an issue in terms of populations, and I'd like to we'll talk in a, in a little bit about um, what would be classed as endangered species in Africa, that the issue is hunting. Now it was hunting, as you've described it there, but it was market hunting, which is a very different uh, different concept to what eventually brought all of those species up from the ashes. All of the the NGOs, a lot of the NGOs that you've listed off there, we don't really have that in this country, and certainly across Europe, we have shooting organisations. They spend a lot of time helping defend what we do. We do have conservation organisations such as the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, but we just don't have that big long list that you have that look after all like individual species yeah doesn't exist unlimited in no. fact you you gave a, a great example i think it was in your own podcast recently which i think people would find interesting uh with i think it was pheasants unlimited and pollinators and the way that they'd been planting uh different areas specifically for pollinators and daryl is actually uh working on a film right now with regard to um honeybees yeah. On our on our heather moors, which are a hundred percent managed by man, and with rotational burning, the spin-off of yeah. that is for for pollinators. But maybe you could just give us the example of what pheasants unlimited have been doing for pollinators. Well, this is a, you know, this is the direction, of course, one of the directions that hunting organisations should be should be going moving towards, which is a clear demonstration that. We are concerned about nature writ large, and we are not just concerned about those species that we hunt. The public has a, in my view, uh, 
a, a reasonable justification for questioning uh, hunting, both because it leads to the death of wild creatures and also because um, I think there have been weaknesses, great weaknesses in the way the hunting community has represented itself. And certainly one of the overwhelming impressions, and I think it's an accurate one for the general public, is that uh, most hunting organizations simply don't care about or work for species or systems that are not providing them something to hunt. And this is why I think the efforts that uh, pheasants and quail forever are involved in right now, which is helping to uh, replant, uh, you know, and and recover uh, natural environments and systems in a way that encourage pollinators that benefit not, not only the, the the bees and wasps and certain flies, but also monarch butterflies, which become a huge issue here in the United States, less so in Canada because of the reduction in their numbers, to help recover pollinators, both from the point of view of recognizing the sheer value that these organisms have in maintaining not only wild production, production of wild plants, but also obviously the production of plants that, that, that we harvest commercially for human food. Um, and of course, understanding that uh, these natural systems, these natural plant systems that are maintained by these pollinators are absolutely critical to you know, a vast diversity of life. And without them, of course, the, the natural systems would simply collapse. The, the good news, I guess, story and the and, and the comfort now for pheasants forever and quail forever is that, you know, some of the landscapes, uh, obviously, that they are helping to maintain that are good for pollinators are also landscapes that have great benefit to, to pheasants and to quail in, in, in many cases. And also, of course, that organization has chapters across the United States, across many different uh, natural systems. They occur in many geographic areas, so they interact with many natural systems. And they have a, a mechanism whereby a program of this scale can be uh, exercised. In other words, they, they have volunteers, they have representatives in many states and provinces in Canada, so they can really launch and help coordinate a very big program of replanting of vegetation and of working with agricultural practitioners to do the right things for pollinators. Um, it, is a, it is an exemplary effort on, on so many levels, but again, most importantly, what it says is that an organization that fundamentally is an organization of hunters or people who believe in hunting and who participate in the, the kind of hunting that, that pheasant and quail pursuits involve, the use of hunting dogs and the great, the great partnership between the dog and the human being, uh, you know, that, 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 that is so romantic and, and, and so wonderful to observe when you see that interaction. And then to see that organization with all of those characteristics also out there trying to do something that benefits all of nature and all of human society by encouraging their membership to do good things for bees and wasps and butterflies. Um, it's just an example of how really it all should work. And it's also an example of how we make hunting and hunters relevant 
uh, in a modern society. Because if the hunting community does not soon realize it, then maybe it will never realize it in time. That if we do not get ourselves in a position where we are understood to be, perceived to be, and actually are conservationists, society will shut us down. And so I view the Pheasants and Quail Forever initiative as something that um, all hunting organizations should be paying attention to. I work with many hunting organizations, as you know, I give advice to many. And uh, one of my most consistent recommendations is for those organizations to deliberately ensure that a portion of their time, their intelligence, their energy, um, their whole volunteerism, as well as their financial resources where they have them, are devoted to conservation efforts and to species which have absolutely nothing to do with hunting. Um, you know, it's not enough for us to say that, you know, we we care and 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 then simply demonstrate that our caring is restricted only to those species that we wish to pursue. Uh, I don't think that's sufficient in a modern world for hunting and and pollinators have become such a huge issue globally. Um, it has so, such great socioeconomic implications for society writ large. When we see the extreme circumstances in places like China where pollinating of crops by hand is actually occurring, when we see circumstances in the United States of America where hundreds of millions of bees have to be imported each year uh, to, to, to simply shore up the, the natural pollinating systems uh, in that wealthy country, I mean, I, I think we have some idea of the scale of the problem that we face. And uh, um, so I think that the the efforts that Pheasants and Quail Forever are making in this regard have benefits to nature. They have benefits ultimately to the organization itself in terms of its own prestige and its, 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 uh, its own personality. Um, and I think ultimately it's going to have great benefits to the hunting world generally. It, as an example to follow. It, it's aspects like that. Uh, looking just at pollinators, there are a lot of other examples we, we could look at that go over the head of the vast majority of people because it's not in their face. And yet the effects, the knock-on effects of that in the long term are on a scale that most of us can't even can't even fathom. And I would I would love to see more of just the kind of examples that uh, you were giving, and we we talk about this actually quite a lot. Yeah, we were about talking about a, a Northern Shingshire uh, a talk that we were hosting as well, talking about exactly what you've just talked about. We have to be caring about more than the species that we uh, have a vested interest vested interest in. And uh, yeah, we we put that to the the panel of people that uh, that, that we were debating with then, and. I, I, I want to see more of that, and uh, I, I hope that people start to pick up that mantle and realize that it is important that we look out with those species that we get something back from, um, because everything is connected. Uh, we sometimes can't see the connections. Well, we know that our listeners get it because they, they donated a huge amount of money to uh, the chimpanzees. Yeah, for anti-poaching. For anti-poaching. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that, that came through Ivan Carter, who I'm sure you know. And yep. uh, he, he had been running a campaign uh, campaign for the Luwaro um, sanctuary in um, in the Congo, 
and uh, our podcast listeners have raised uh, quite a bit of money for that. And that was that that whole campaign that we ran off the back of um, Ivan's was on the basis of we need to think about more than just the species that we get direct benefit from. And, uh, and people answered it, which yeah, was great. Uh, I want to go on from what you were just um, saying there, Shane, about how the hunting community need to stay relevant to something which I've heard you talk about before, which is how the, the, the narrative and the message that the hunting community has told from when we first started to put pen to paper uh, and tell hunting stories to today has shifted from somewhere where hunters were heralded almost as heroes to today where they're almost the villain. Uh, and talk about that, the journey from, from then to now and why that's changed and, and what we need to do to change our story and, and make what we do more acceptable and, and relatable, which goes back to what you were talking about. Well, you know, for most of human history, of course, 99.9% or 99% of our history, um, we existed as hunter-gatherers. And uh, it was... a you know, hunting was a communal effort, um, and only only um, those who make modern mistakes over hunting sort of uh, emphasize the individual who killed the animal in that context as being the hunter. Hunting was planned for. It was. It involved the community. It involved many individuals who hunted. Some of whom killed animals. Some of whom played other roles. Uh, it involved women and children in the preparation, uh, you know, the, the butchering of the kills and the preparation of the food and the preservation of the food. And the hunt was very much this um, this ceremony uh, of the group. Um, and um, we, of course, still in that context, we we recognized and praised and honored and respected. Uh, those individuals who were who were particularly good at taking possession of animals, of eventually, you know, capturing or killing animals, because of course it was vital to our existence. And not everyone has the same talent for that activity any more than everybody has the same talent for music. But what gradually happened as hunting became in Western societies and in more technological societies, more agricultural societies, frankly, uh, when hunting became not as essential and where especially it began in the 20th century to move and latter 19th century to move more into the recreational sphere. Then, of course, a lot of that community engagement was lost, wasn't it? I mean, it was not everyone participating anymore. It was more the individual and it perhaps their family, but not the entire community. In most cases, that disappeared in these Western cultures. And uh, so there was, of course, a natural and almost inevitable drift towards more emphasis on the individual, the individual hunter, the individual person who actually harvested the fish or harvested the wildlife. This was part of the social change that occurred over time. A further and much more damaging step, however, is certainly traceable in the writings and the expressions of hunting in Canada and the United States here in North America, 
um, over you know the last 70 to 80 years. It was very clear that up until about the 1960s or so, um, you know, the the outdoor writing and the representations of hunting in the outdoor genre of of, uh, of storytelling and and article writing and book production and so on emphasized two things. And this is my assessment of it, at least. It emphasized two things, and one of which was, uh, you know, uh, the experience. So the writing was all about the the challenge. It was all about the weather. It was all about the the lost horses, or the sudden snowfalls, or the the floods that occurred, or the terrible weather that prevailed for days, which prevented people from moving out of their camps, uh, um, or the spectacular scenery that they saw, or the sunsets that they viewed, or the mountains that they climbed, and the vistas that they beheld as a result of their efforts. Um, you know, or the sights of other wildlife, not the wildlife that they were pursuing. You know, these, these were the things that fill the stories. And the second thing that filled the story was the incredible capacities of the wildlife that they encountered, and particularly the wildlife that they pursued. If they were hunting wild sheep, or they were hunting, uh, if they were hunting elk, or if they were hunting bear, or if they were, whatever they were hunting, uh, the emphasis was very much on the animal and how it eluded them and how its, its capacities were so much better than theirs and its senses so more finely tuned and how it could use its landscape in a way that, that, that we could only dream of. And then uh, we started to see a shift away from this. And from the 70s onward in particular, exacerbated greatly in Canada and the United States by the rise of television shows that pandered to this, uh, there was an emphasis on two very different things. The emphasis was no longer on the experience, and the emphasis was no longer on the hunted. The emphasis shifted to the hunter, who became the central player, and to the kill, which became the central event. And nothing has ever happened to so damage the image of hunting before, and hopefully nothing since, uh, that has so strongly affected the public perception of what hunting is about. This may not have played out to the exact same extent in other parts of the world, but it certainly played out here. And uh, I think this married with, went along with, in certain regions, certain locations, certain circumstances, the rising idea that hunting was only for the elite. And this has been a certainly a debated issue in, in European uh, uh, countries. And it's also been a debate within the United States and Canada, particularly for certain kinds of hunting and certain kinds of species. So what has happened is hunting has been in a way commodified. Um, and in a way, um, it has, just as the public sentiment is beginning to express, it has come to represent itself as the hunter and the death of creatures, not about wild harvest or not about the experience or not about loving all of nature or not about being concerned for all natural things and all natural systems. We have not been projecting that image. In fact, we've been projecting 
an image that is very, very extremely different from that, almost antagonistic to that in many ways. And little wonder, of course, that we find ourselves in a world today where hunting is being increasingly questioned as to whether it is legitimate, whether it is ethical, whether it is relevant, and whether it is appropriate in a modern society. And I blame the hunting community, by and large, for this problem. Um, I do not feel uh, antipathy towards or antagonistic towards people who question deeply whether hunting should occur. I do not. I understand uh, their concerns and I understand in large part why they feel the way they do. And while hunting will be a contentious issue regardless of what we do to some extent, I think we have greatly, greatly facilitated um, the impressions that are out there in the public mind by our videos, by our journal, by our magazine articles, by our photographs that we post, uh, um, by so many things. And in the international hunting world, uh, we have often, um, you know, uh, you know, made even greater mistakes in, in some ways, in that we have failed to recognize how sensitive uh, the public is towards the death of elephants or lions or, you know, other iconic symbolic uh, symbolic creatures. We cannot deny that that death is a part of this activity. We, we, we cannot deny that. It is, it is simply true. But to have made the death of the animal the central act in the entire play, the entire drama, this, this has been a, a, a terrible thing. And, um, and to have it glorified is, is an abomination. Yeah, and, I, uh, I, sorry to interrupt you there. I was uh, just going to, to reinforce what you just said. I, I sat on a stage at what, what is the biggest game fair uh, in the UK just last weekend, I think it was. And I, I was asked the question off the back of um, a film series that we made, um, which was essentially about hunting, but the purpose, the way we made it was we wanted to tell more of a story where the kill was almost, yes, it would happen if we were successful, but it was kind of irrelevant to the story and would someone who wasn't a hunter could watch it. And in one of those episodes, we didn't, we weren't successful and that was the story that we told. And uh, the, the guy who was interviewing me there said that, do you not think that uh, if people are watching something that they, they want to see that and that by not giving them a kill shot in a film that in some way it's incomplete and you need that to tell the story. And I had a, a bit of a, a heated back and forward with him trying to explain that the story was complete and to continually show a kill shot in every single episode or every single film that's made about it is actually not true to reality. And it has very much distorted... I think hunters' view of themselves, but as you've just said, also the general public's perception of hunters. And we see it when we look back at our, our own stuff that we uploaded or other people's, the amount of times people feel the need, because you can look at these analytics, to watch and rewatch and rewatch a kill shot. Well, you know, it's a, it's a marriage between uh, technology, commercialization, um, and the human activity, right? It's, um, once you, once you bring 
once you bring that 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 amalgam together, uh, the new product that comes out of it is not the same as what went into it. Um, and um, you know, people get to be celebrities in the hunting world, uh, or traditionally have gotten to be celebrities in the hunting world in the last two to three decades in the United States and Canada by being uh, part of shows that show a lot of killing. And that's certainly been true of the shows that have been filmed in Africa as well. You know, we don't have uh, uh, a long history of showing a balanced view of the activity. What we are starting to see in some of your own films may well uh, be a part of this, I don't know. But what we are certainly starting to see is a counter reaction uh, to all of this and the rise of you know better films and better television shows better articles um you know there is there is now a counter reaction taking place but a significant amount of this distortion was driven by you know marketing and and economic models that involve television you know stations and that involve you know magazines and so on that really felt that for a while they could increase viewership or increase readership or whatever by emphasizing of course that that one split second out of potentially two weeks or three weeks of of hunting um and of course um the 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 modern technologies have brought some horrific images to a huge number of people um and if we had images of, you know, um, animals being killed in an abattoir, which sometimes we do see, uh, and we show that to the human public or to the public. And, you know, the emphasis is on the, you know, that the killing of the animals in those circumstances, there'd be a very, an incredible reaction there too. Mm. Yet the farmer or rancher who raises his sheep in England, uh, or raises his cattle in Montana or Colorado. Um, you know, he raises those animals in the full knowledge that those animals will become food, that they will eventually be killed, they will die, and that people will consume them. But if the only story that anyone ever saw, if the only, if the only part of the rural lifestyle of Britain, of people who do raise animals for food, was to see when the animal is dispatched, then people might have a very different impression of rural animal husbandry too. Yeah. yeah. And that's what they've gotten out of hunting. And we have definitely been entirely responsible for bringing them that. Yeah, even today we we see it, and I pick up people for this online. It's particularly bad on social media where pictures, pictures, are the worst thing. Pictures that have zero context and no necessity to be published in any format. They are just some sort of, I don't know, glory for the hunter, which even taken in context is distasteful, but taken out of context, you can understand why people outside the circle of hunting view it so dimly sometimes. and I, I, think, I don't like looking at them. No, I neither yeah. do I. I, I. I personally think that the hunting community maybe needs to, to sit back and accept 
the reasons why we are just like what you've been explaining, accept the reasons why we are facing the challenges that we face today. And I think that there is almost a, a denial that it, it really lies, it lay in our hands and it lies in our hands today to move forward in a way that is constructive and relatable. Yes, and this, of course, is uh, just to bend back to a little bit earlier in the conversation. This is why the wild harvest aspect is so important. Mm -hmm. People are concerned about health. They're very concerned about health. They're very concerned about the food they consume. Um, and they're very concerned about the way their food comes to them. Um, and, and, and in fact, how animals are treated. And in the wild harvest, of course, the animal is not treated in any way. The animal lives its life in nature. Um, and we don't have to worry about how it was treated. It was treated well in the sense that it lived a natural life. Uh, we know that the food that's produced on the land is is, is virtually incomparable. I mean, it's it, it is it is amazingly it is of amazingly good quality. It's, it is of the best quality. It is the, the quality that we evolved with. We know this is true, and we know that in the pursuit of it, there is a tremendous exertion, physical exertion, in many cases at least, to to attain this. And so, we are marrying, um, you know, broad public sentiment over food and the quality of food and the quality of animal life um, with the idea of wild harvest and the only way to harvest these wild animals of course that we deem appropriate today is not to net them or to round them up or to pursue them with vehicles or whatever it is to pursue them one-on-one -on -one, uh, and then hopefully and in most cases we do dispatch them very, very quickly with a minimal amount of pain. And then we utilize that animal. And if I may also extend this argument, you know, I've been, I've been talking about these things for almost a quarter of a century. It's exact same things. And uh, one thing I can say is that when I started to talk about them first, the reaction in certain parts of the hunting community was not terribly favorable. But I am finding today that there is a growing um, coalition of the committed and the concerned, I think that are rising within the world, yourselves included, that are really, you know, seeing, seeing the necessity for change. From the public perception point of view, we desperately need to re-represent hunting, but we also need to point out at the same time that, that a belief in the escape from animal death is a very difficult proposition for the world. All world fisheries are hunts. I keep saying this to people. All world fisheries are hunts. We pursue sentient creatures that seek to avoid and evade us. We capture them, we kill them, we butcher them, we consume them. And so we do also need to be honest on the other side with the public and ask them to realize that the food they consume, trace it back far enough, and an incredible amount of animal death is involved every day to feed the people of Sussex or the people of London or the people of wherever, <laughs> the people of New York or the people of Chicago or of Montreal. Um, and so I think another thing the hunting world needs to do 
is to draw these parallels and, if you will, confuse the growing public mind to some extent by pointing out that this pursuit and taking of wild, sentient creatures for bushmeat in many parts of the world, for indigenous peoples in many parts of the world, through recreational harvest, through hunting and angling recreationally, or through the commercial harvest such as fisheries, these are all entangled to some extent in an, an irreducible equation, which is that death and life are absolutely inextricably linked on this planet. It's something that a lot of people uh, probably don't want to admit to themselves. Uh, and it, it is our job to help them understand that, I suppose. And to help them understand that people can love creatures. Yes. The rancher, the farmer, you know, the man who, 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 who does everything to save the life of a single hue in, 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 in at lambing time, the, the rancher who goes out in the middle of snowstorms, uh, you know, to save a single calf and things of this nature. This is, this is not all motivated. You know, those individual human beings care deeply about those individual animals, yet they know, they know that that lamb, that calf will eventually go to market and will eventually feed people. Most of our conversation here has been about sustainable use. It's been about the, the death of animals for food consumption. The one thing that we haven't really talked about, if you want to give it the, the title of trophy hunting, it's particularly relevant in the last two weeks here in the UK, although it seems to be relevant every month because of new stories that come out because of a, a new uh, online um, uh, hunting channel platform where there is a lot of trophy hunting, in inverted commas, on there. Uh, so it's been in our national press a lot in the last week. How, Shane, if you can maybe talk around that that concept and where it came from, and maybe also <laughs> as uh, concisely as you can, t tackle the, the idea about um, trophy hunting as a moral choice, but also it as a a management tool, uh, which we which is most often looked at when we, we're looking at elephant and rhino and species like that in Africa. Uh, we often talk about the idea that you can maybe able to take exception with an individual person's moral choice for wanting to hunt that specific animal, but as long as it is being done as part of uh, a management plan and the correct animal is being taken at the correct time in their life, it is actually irrelevant what that individual person's um, decision process was for wanting to pull the trigger. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of questions in that question. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so you may need to remind me of some of them as I as I unleash here. But um, well, first of all, the history. I can tell you very clearly what the history has been. Uh, in North America, although I am familiar with it in other parts of the world, I know it best here. And so let me let me explain that. At the time of the massive depletion of wildlife that really escalated between about 1830 and 1900 in Canada and the United States, um, 
there was, as I indicated, a counter-reaction. And in fact, it was the excess of the bison in particular that finally helped engender this awakening for conservation here. One of the most important players in that process was an organization known as the Boone and Crockett Club, named obviously after the famous explorers and woodsmen, um, Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. And it was formed actually by Theodore Roosevelt in 1887. He gathered a group of very wealthy, prestigious Easterners uh, uh, to his home in New York City. And his message was very simple. It was that uh, I am going to create an organization that will only ever have 100 regular members. It will be made up of people who have done very well by this country. It will be made up of people who are concerned about wildlife and who are expected to give back to this nation financially and otherwise and through their influence to ensure that wildlife does not disappear. And that organization, the Boone and Crockett Club, eventually quite early in the 20th century, uh, unleashed two things. One was a concept actually borrowed directly from Europe and from European immigrants and European writers who came to America to live and who introduced the idea or the concept of fair chase. Uh, this is thought to have been, by many people, is thought to have been something that originated with the Boone and Crocker Club in America. They became the lead spokesman for it, but in fact, it was strongly influenced by, in particular, British writers who came to America and wrote about the sportsman's code and ethics and so on and so forth. They launched the idea of this uh, individual hunting versus market hunting. Market hunting was just taboo to them and individual hunting done under regulation and done under fair chase conditions. They introduced that. At the same time, they organized a demonstration of what they called a heads and horns demonstration, which sounds terribly sort of outdated now. But these were mounts of wild animals in North America that were organized for shows held originally in, in New York, but then in other places. And the banner headline to attract people to come to see this extravaganza was come and see America's vanishing wildlife. The original display of mounted specimens of heads and horns with full skin on, full cape, different from the European mounts that were displayed here in America a hundred years ago and more, was because the Boone and Crockett Club and Theodore Roosevelt believed that these species were doomed to extinction, that they simply would not survive. And the only hope they had of surviving was if the American public rose in some sense and said, we will not tolerate their loss, which is eventually what, what happened. And they then, in association with this fair chase ethic, and this idea of a specimen that could be recorded and looked at and measured, if you will, they introduced the idea of a scoring system, which of course there are many scoring systems for heads and horns and antlers, etc., in Europe as well. They introduced one here in America and they established a records book 
Now, all of this seems to play into the stereotype of the kind of trophy hunting person who goes out, kills an animal, and then wants to display it on their wall and so on and so forth. But the original thinking of the Boone and Crockett Club was, if we are going to save wildlife, we need a strong advocacy group. We must allow the continued harvest of wildlife for very many reasons, including creating that advocacy group of sportsmen. We must have hunting which is done under fair chase conditions. We must limit hunting to the older males, protect the females, protect the productive age classes, and only harvest or primarily harvest from the population those older males that have already contributed, which of course also have the biggest horns and the biggest antlers and so on and so forth. And they created this record book where you could demonstrate that you had hunted by fair chase, that you had taken one of these animals which did not deplete the renewable population, did not destroy the breeding center of the population, and that you would therefore be recognized for your trophy by being included in a book that could be held up and said, if you will follow these rules and principles and regulations, you will be worthy of being having your harvest recorded in the Boone and Crockett record book. It was totally about management. And that is where the term trophy and how it evolved and emerged in the North American context. That was its original intention. Over time, like all words in all languages, this word becomes changed and morphed and the impressions change. And as people change their hunting practices and move to hunting in places where of course they were not necessarily able to retrieve both the horns, the head, the cape, the meat, everything, because they were traveling to distant places such as Africa. Then of course the trophy hunting which had originated in America, which meant you used everything. You took the meat, you took the part of the skin, you took the skull, you took the horns, you took all kinds of things that you couldn't eat, as well as everything you could eat. You took all that with your animal, all that from your kill. When people started to travel to international destinations, of course, to hunt ibex in Spain or to hunt from America, to hunt uh, elephant in Africa or whatever, then of course the idea of returning with the meat became kind of a ridiculous notion. And what you did return with, of course, were the tusks or the teeth or the head or the, you know, the cape or the full mount or whatever. But this is where the American side of things originated. And remember, for international hunting, particularly in Africa, this is overwhelmingly a North American and particularly an American activity. I mean, we all realize the statistics there. The vast, vast majority of people who hunt Africa are Americans. And so this over time, however, became a different hunt. And in fact, it became interpreted differently. And also, you know, different systems emerged whereby people were guided by professional hunters. You know, there was a lot of different, different ways of commodifying it or making it a business, et cetera, you know, came into all of this. And so the modern reaction is very commonly, even within the hunting community, 
this is an important issue. Even within the hunting community, there's great debate over this issue of trophy hunting. But what does trophy hunting really mean? In the context of North America, hunting for a particularly old ram or a particularly old bull, moose or, or elk or something, is still very much part of that original tradition. Um, in Africa, of course, uh, the emphasis really has been on returning with the head or the horns or the tusks, etc., because that reasonably is about all most people are going to bring back to the United States, Canada, or other parts of the world if they hunt an animal in Africa. Now, does it mean that the meat is wasted in those circumstances? We know in many cases, of course, it is not, and that the meat is consumed by uh, people who live uh, in the area and who then take charge of the carcass of the animal and obviously consume the meat while the hunter takes back these mementos or these reminders of, uh, of, the, of the hunt that that person had. Having said all of that, we can add to the fact that in some circumstances, not necessarily in all, but in some circumstances, in Africa in particular, um, trophy hunting does help fund um, programs which protect significant amounts of land, which benefit wildlife, land that would otherwise be given over to other systems of production with domestic livestock and with all of the conflicts that arise there between wild animals and domestic livestock and lead to the loss of predators, for example, that prey on livestock or animals that damage crops such as elephants and so on and so forth. In some cases, the trophy hunting programs demonstrably, you know, as has been shown by, you know, articles that have emanated from respected organizations like the IUCN and the World Wildlife Fund and others. <clears throat> In some cases, there can be no doubt that trophy hunting enables the protection of land in Africa that benefits both prey and predator. And there is no doubt that if those options were foreclosed, that that land would be turned over to other purposes. And it is fine for those of us in the West. It is fine for the people of Britain. It is fine for the people of the United States or of Canada or of Sweden or it's fine for anyone anywhere to say that we should have lots of lions, and lots of elephants, lots of these these great creatures, but we must have a way for local people to be able to live with them as well. It is amazing to me that many of the people who wish for there to be huge numbers of lions or you know elephants or leopards or and, and, and other species that can be dangerous to human beings. It's amazing to me how vocal and vociferous they can be in support of that when if a cockroach shows up in their home. They immediately panic and call some technological wizard who can come in and destroy that insect. And if it's a rat that should get into their home, you know, an animal the size of a the size of a squash versus an elephant or a lion the size of a car, uh, they go absolutely berserk. But they want the local people of Africa to deal with lions, to deal with leopards, to deal with elephants and so on. In this, in this, in this Edenic way, when in fact those animals are often threats to their livelihoods, threats to their personal safety, 
and the safety of their children and their parents and grandparents and so on and so forth. So trophy hunting has a place to help benefit conservation in various parts of the world and particularly in parts of Africa. Now, your question, does it matter if a person is motivated one way or the other, if the trophy hunting program, the hunting by international residents who travel to a distant country to pursue a specific animal or a specific group of animals and pays a significant amount of money to do that and only returns with the horns and antlers and not the meat, etc. You know, does the motivation of the person who participates in that activity matter as long as it's done sustainably, uh, legally, and as long as there are benefits to conservation? I think that was one of your questions, correct? Yeah. So the, the issue here is what the public, how the public perceives that motivation versus how the game manager or the hunter themselves actually perceive this. For the public, the motivation is very important. And in fact, even in the hunting community, here in North America, for example, a significant percentage of hunters will not call themselves trophy hunters and in fact will very declaratively express that they are not trophy hunters. So this tension over trophy hunting, it is, we must be honest here, this tension over trophy hunting is not just between the hunting community and the general public. This issue also resonates within the hunting community itself. Now, why is that? That's an important question for the hunting world to answer. But to come back to your question, I think it does matter in this sense. First of all, the public wants to know. And secondly, shouldn't we care about whether we care? I mean, if one's motivation is to just go and take things, let's say it is for some people, I just wish to go and take things. I just wish to add to my list, you know, like life listers and birding, right? I just want to see it, you know, I take it off there. Uh, now I have the nuthatch and um, I have Swainson's thrush, and, you know, and, they, and they, they just take it off. I mean, if somebody is take animals and kill them under that premise. Do you think that matters? Mm. I think it does. Yeah, I mean, now, sorry, no, no, carry, carry on, carry on, Chen. You know, we're not the, we're not the, this is not to be the police force of the hunting world or anything of this nature, but it's simply to point out that I am always watchful of um, anything that leads us to believe it's an us and them debate 
between the hunting world and the non-hunting world. When I actually think there's a lot of debate going on that cannot be dichotomized like that across the public, including the hunting and non-hunting public. So I do believe the motivation matters. Yes, I do. Do I believe that we should say, if you're not motivated this way, you can't do it? No, that's not what I'm saying. But your question was, does it matter? if I remember it correctly, and if that was the exact question you were asking, then yes, I think it does matter. Yeah, I, I would I would love everybody to care incredibly deeply about the choices that they're making. I suppose that the reason for that kind of rationale is that if you're if you're sitting in a sort of a debating scenario, and you're you've got one pin up, whether that be Cecil Lyon or whatever it is, you have no way of knowing what the choices were or the reasons why that particular person wanted to hunt that animal. So the only thing that you can truly say when you're faced with defend trophy hunting is that is all the other arguments that you came up with. Um, it, you can't really speak for that individual person. Would it in an ideal world? Would it be? Would it matter? Should it matter? about your actual reasons for taking it absolutely and like you said from a public perception point of view if it if it truly mattered to everybody and it was very obvious why you were you were doing it and why you'd made those choices we probably wouldn't be having this discussion <laughs> no and i think there's a really important addition i would make to that which is you know people often ask me because they know about my feelings about animals at least there are a lot of people who do and i make no bones about it i you know, I believe, you know, animal welfare is a, is a critical issue that everybody in the planet should be concerned about, and hunters especially, and yet we never speak about it. Um, you know, so they, they ask me, you know, you know how, how, how is it that I, I can be talking about protecting animals and, uh, or pollinators or things of this nature, and yet I hunt? And, uh, and I bring them back to first principles. Um, Part of the reason I have a, a lot of colleagues in, in very different camps, so to speak, is because I have made it clear that what I am in favor of is whatever works for wildlife. And what I am opposed to is what does not. It is not my role to say I am better or that person is better if the engagements that they are involved with, whether it is protesting against hunting and yet they are doing good things for wildlife or they are in favor of hunting and doing good things for wildlife, that I'm in favor of that. But on either side of that divide, if that is not true, if they are arguing against hunting and not arguing for something that will benefit wildlife. I am against it. And if they are arguing for hunting, but they really are not doing something for the natural world, I'm not in favor of that either. I think that the, I think we need on this planet right now, we got almost 8 billion of us. We're going to run up against nine. And some people thinking very optimistically believe we'll get to 10. I'm not sure what kind of world it's going to be with 10. I'm not even sure what kind of world it's going to be with nine. But I know the world we've got at eight. 
which is a constant, massive decline in wild diversity across this planet that we can plot, you know, going forward in a regression, knowing exactly where we're going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, and so on and so forth. And it's an ever, ever steepening decline. We have the oceans virtually overfished. Vertebrate species are falling in massive numbers around the world. We're losing untold numbers of species that we don't even know what their names are. We haven't even identified them. You know, every day, every year, we have animals being slaughtered. You know, every 15 or 20 minutes, we have we have iconic animals being killed for their eyeballs or their teeth or their tails or their tusks or their horns or, or something. You know, we don't have the luxury of trying to sit on ideological pinheads and argue about this. We need whatever works to keep the wild others with us. That's it. And what you what you said about uh, the trying to remove the lines between them and us, I uh, absolutely uh, would echo that because I think there's there's been far too much of it. Certainly in this country, we've we've done we've done it for fifty years, and it clearly hasn't worked. Uh, we need to find the the common ground. Shane, I know we're kind of running up against time. I just wanted just to finally finish up on on one aspect, which we're seeing increasingly here, which is the the thought process from maybe the complete opposite side to sustainable use, which is the kind of protect, protectionism, leave it alone. Just leave it be and everything will be fine. What do you say to that argument that is increasingly coming up? Well, first of all, if I look at successful models of conservation anywhere in the world, including here in North America, there has always been a blend of both protectionism and utilitarianism. I mean, here in the United States and Canada, you know, we had some of the first national parks in the world. We have many wilderness areas. We have lots of areas where hunting, for example, or even many kinds of motorized access and things of this nature are completely forbidden. Um, and I'm totally in support of that under certain circumstances and the right circumstances, just as I am totally in support of, of, of the idea of, uh, of harvest under certain circumstances. But, and here's the but, wildlife does not exist by accident anymore, anywhere, anywhere. It only exists now by virtue of the efforts that we make on its behalf. I would love for this planet to be a place where wildlife could simply exist, whether we liked them or didn't like them or wanted them or didn't want them, that that it was still a place where all nature overruled everything in that sense. But we now know whether it's the great whales or whether it's ungulates or whether it's the big predators or whether it's Africa or whether it's Asia, whether it's Europe, whether it's North America, South America, it doesn't matter. The only way that they will exist now against the tide of humanity and our demand for resources is by virtue of specific actions that we take. And we cannot eliminate human beings from the ecological equation. How natural is that? How did that ever become natural? We're just one more species in a list of many that interact and take and give and exist. And there is no way to simply make 8 billion, 9 billion, 10 billion of us voyeurs. Where do we draw the line? 
Are we going to stop all world fisheries, as I've referred to earlier, that currently feeds 2.3, 2.5 billion people in the world, employs hundreds of millions? Are we going to end that? Well, they're all hunts. We're going to, we're going to do away with all of that. We're not going to raise livestock anymore. We're not going to have any cattle or sheep or things of this nature in the world. We're just going to let it all go and, and, and not harvest anything. This is not realistic. And are we going to draw the lines between so-called indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples in this regard? Are we going to protect everything and put all those local tribesmen in various parts of the world, the Inuit and the Innu and the, and the, and the various tribes of Africa and South America and Asia? Are we going to take all those cultural types and simply exclude them from their existences? Are we going to say, I'm sorry, you can't use it anymore? Or are we going to say, oh, it's okay for you. You, you do it. And where do we draw the line there? Do we draw the line between the indigenous communities that have already moved to different lifestyles? Um, Indian tribes in America who run casinos and so on and so forth and have decided that they want to have that kind of a lifestyle. Are they still going to have access where the average man on the street does not? Who was going to make those decisions? We cannot have a world, even the most, even the, even the, even the most respected amongst the world's conservation leadership, even the E.O. Wilsons of the world who want 50% of the planet saved, at least are saying only 50. The idea that we can save wildlife by any single method, sustainable use, protectionism, you know, or blasting us all off to live on other planets, it's not realistic. We need everything. We need everything. And do we need people to stand up for protectionism? Absolutely we do. I, I, I applaud them. I have argued for protected areas many, many times in my career. But that served a particular benefit to the conservation of wildlife. It provided a specific benefit. But we need to have specific benefits derived from sustainable use too. And there are many, including this North American model, which I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, empirical data will support this, that while there have been a diverse community of interests that have supported the conservation of wildlife in Canada and the United States, no single group has provided as much volunteerism, as much financial support, as much political advocacy, as much. Others have provided lots, but not as much as the people who have sustainably utilized wildlife in Canada and the United States. There, it's, it's, it's empirical, the amount of money, you know, there's just no other way to interpret the data that we have before us. So people, it is, it is so difficult to look for people who have, you know, see wild creatures, who have their own animals close to them, their dogs, their cats, their domestic animals, their horses, their, their sheep. And their I, I know this. Look, we love those animals. And as I've said in many lectures, we love them as much as we love people. I don't care who dislikes that. We do. We love them as much as we love people. I have loved animals in my life as much as I love people. There's no question about it. I have missed them as much as I've missed people when they've died. But we cannot, so I understand why we want to protect them. 
but we are now in a world where we are devouring the world and we need practical solutions for the conservation of nature. And in some cases, that means the hunting community is going to have to say, I fully support that protected area or that protectionist policy. And it's going to require that people who have that as a primary philosophical motivation are going to have to turn and I support the sustainable use of wildlife. Why? Not because I like it, but because it benefits the wild others of this planet. And that to me is the bottom line. Shane, it has been an education. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule. I know that we're, we're gonna we're gonna end up with messages off the back of this podcast <laughs> yeah. for months now um, about ha- having you on and what people have learned. So yeah, I can't thank you enough for for coming on and everything you've you've done to to this point in your life because I know that uh, your writings and your lectures and the podcasts that you've been on before this one have been a great source and resource for people who are trying to find their way and an understanding in what is an incredibly complex planet. Well, thank you very much. And may I just say I'm really delighted to see uh, the efforts that you're making. Um, We need an international engagement on this. We really do. Uh, We need to break down those barriers too, where we mutually support one another across nations to do the right things for the natural world. Um, And uh, I understand that you're involved in film production and video production. And at some point, I'd like to learn a little bit more of what you're involved with there, because I'm doing a lot of that as well and have done a lot of it. Um, And I, I uh, I just like to explore what there might be some possibilities there. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Shane. Okay, okay, guys. Thank you very much. And that's it for another two weeks. Don't forget to enter our competition to win a set of Smith Optics uh, shooting glasses. As we told you at the start, you simply need to tell us who wrote who was the author and the name of the book on a recent podcast and uh, for everyone that is starting the grouse season have fun and i'm talking about everyone not just people shooting people going out beating and picking up and of course the people shooting have fun byron is actually shooting i am going to be shooting on the 12th the first time in my life but actually that's a really good point because a lot of people don't realize how much enjoyment everybody gets from being involved in a grouse day whether you're loading or flanking, it doesn't matter. It's just it's just an awesome day. I mean, it's great I, to be part I have of seen it. some beaters that didn't look too happy then, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe. But normally because they haven't been dressed correctly. Yeah, they're, they're sweating. And wearing like, trainers. Yeah, or being eaten alive by midges. I think one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen, this was, I'm talking years ago now, like four or five years ago, Byron did an interview with some uh, beaters up uh, in Vermont. Uh, in Vermont. And... Uh, they were being eaten alive the entire time through the, the interview. It was it was hilarious. We should really dig that out. And, yeah, and, and the, the one time that Amidji goes in, the in one the guy's, guy's ear, ear, and you see him sort of fishing it out. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of this interview. Oh, it was very funny. Um, I think that's it. Yep. Uh, I would like to thank the thousands and thousands and thousands of people, no exaggeration, thousands of people, uh, that have downloaded the show in the last few days. And the even more thousands that have downloaded in the last few months. Uh, without you, we wouldn't be doing this. It's no. as simple as that. And 
spread keep spreading the word the word of mouth is the best way to get this podcast out there um so if you are on a clay range or you're walking with someone you're with your buddy in your car uh lamping at night and you listen to the show introduce it to someone else tell someone else about the show because the more people that know about it the better it is because we have people from all walks of life listening to the show from here to australia to the united states um and this, we like to think there's some really good information that will educate people because we we bring people on that know what they're talking about. Yeah, that that's that is why we started this. Yes, we want to entertain you, but we want to provide awesome information from people who know their stuff. Mm-hmm. No BS. Yeah, that's it. But thank you and join us again in two weeks' time. This podcast is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports.